Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a conversation where good thoughts help renew the mind with the Word of God. I'm Charlie Carter, and I'm here with Tim Little and Andy Stearns. Let's jump into the conversation. Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a wonderful duet of an episode with myself, Charlie, and Dr. Tim Little. Whatever name you want to use. I was trying to come up with something other than Dr. Little. and You could call me by my Hebrew name. I don't know if you know my Hebrew name. I don't know your Hebrew name. That's okay. Let's just move on. Ooh, tease, tease. What's Tim's Hebrew name? All right, so here is what we're going to do in this episode. I have already introduced the episode. Congratulations. Well done. Perfect. (laughs) Uh, For announcements, we just have Andy's Weekly Wisdom, which will be from Sir Teange coming up in a moment. We are going to have two little tidbits of listener feedback, one in which we're going to go back and answer a question that was raised a while ago by, I believe, Caleb Lobb about golden calves. And no, we're not talking about someone who's really fit. And number two, we have an email. Yeah, a, like a golden cave. I got it. Yeah. It took a little bit. Yeah, yeah. There's actually... No, we're not going to say we'll that. Keep anyway, going. <clears throat> I know someone who refers to themselves like as their gamer tag is the golden calf, but we won't get into that. Uh, and then we have another email that came in this week from Isaiah Hawk that we're going to we're gonna tease, that we're going to talk about that at a later episode. So hopefully that uh, that teases you. Anyway. From there, we're going to get to books and business, where we mention what we've been reading and working on the main content of the episode. We're going to go back to that's another listener feedback. Randy Vodder sent us an- a, Oh, that's what you're interacting with. Yeah, an article, article about um, about C.S. Lewis. And let me pull that up again. What was it? Uh, I should, you know, a, a good host would have already pulled this up, but, you know, the, the article's name was Five- Cardinal Rules on Living a Good Life by C. Uh, not by C.S. Lewis, about C.S. Lewis by Thomas something something. Uh, but we're going to talk about that during our episode. And then we're going to close the episode with a devotion in Exodus 32 ish, ish, which is fitting as we talk about golden calves here in a moment. And here's Charlie's homemade sound effect. Whoosh. <laughs> Announcements Andy's weekly wisdom. <laughs> horrendous yeah i know at some point i'll get a little bit more post-production but for now it's handmade whoosh whoosh so uh we're moving on in certeange to a new section and we had been in a section about let's see here it was the cultivation of necessary contacts where you know you have He's talked about your fellows. He's talked about your fools. Oh, yeah. You, you know? had that weird one about the wife. Yeah. Well, there's the, <laughs> there's the wife who kind of curates the context of the home. And then, well, you sometimes have to deal with fools. And last week we talked about, you know, he was de- debating, like, how do you interact with people that you don't necessarily have as an intellectual contact? And he's like, you know what? Sometimes your silence is is better than actually interacting with these people. And then from there, in the same chapter on the organization of the intellectual's life, the next section is safeguarding the necessary element of action. And what he calls is action is action, like doing things. Right. And he says this, that, uh, and I'm I'm just going to read a couple of paragraphs here. Oh, two paragraphs. Three. Oh, my. 
And what he does is he contrasts the intellectual life, which is mindish, uh-huh. it's thinking, right, to action, like going and doing mm-hmm. physical things. I that, think I remember what this yeah. is about. So here's what he says. He says it's okay to sit in the chair and chill out for a while while you're thinking. You don't have to be doing and producing things all the time. Well, let's, well, not necessarily producing in the sense of like writing, but like being active, like doing like Mm -hmm. physical things. Anyway, the intellectual vocation strictly considered is contrary to that of action. The contemplative life and the active life have always been contrasted as springing from contrary thoughts and aspirations. Contemplation gathers in. Action gives out. The one seeks for light. The other longs to bestow its possessions on others. Speaking generally, we must evidently resign ourselves to this division of tasks being glad, each of us, to praise what we do not do, to love and appreciate its fruit in others, thanks to the communion of souls. So some of us have a contemplative life, some of us don't. Somebody's got to go bring in the crops. Exactly. Here's where I think the value in about what, he, what he's about to say. But real life, I think emphasis on real, real life does not admit of such a strict separation. Duty may force us into action as a moment ago we saw it might we saw it might into the society of, society of our fellows. So sometimes you can't avoid interacting with people that you maybe wouldn't have chosen to interact with. Sure. You also can't just get away from action in life. Sure. Sometimes there's things you have to do. Action or I'll finish the statement there. Sometimes we might fall into the society of those fellows, and the same principles apply with action. Action regulated by conscience prepares conscience itself for the rules of truth, disposes it for recollection when the time comes, unites it to providence, which is also a source of truth. That's just kind of wordy there, but what I liked is the very end of it. Thought and action have the same father. Capital F. That's where he mentioned providence earlier, and he capitalized that as well. And his point is, sure, if you want to be an intellectual, that's your life. You're going to spend a lot of time sitting, gathering in light, reading, contemplating, and you might have a disproportionate amount of that to your action. That doesn't mean you don't have action. Right. And when there are things that come into your life that require doing action, that's also from your father. Right. And doing the things that you should do, acting when you need to act, is not uh, in discord to the life of the mind. Uh, he actually hinted it in there, and it's most of what the rest of the chapter is about, is that acting when you're supposed to act helps you think when you're supposed to think. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I, I just like that little, I like that whole page of recognizing that the life of the mind as a goal, sometimes has things that cause it to cease. And there's mm-hmm. a, a, it's good and right for that to happen. And so uh, that last quote, I'll read, it, I'll read it one more time as a cap. Thought and action have the same father. Mm-hmm. Like that quote. Moving on. Books and business. Not quite yet. Oh, what we had? We've got some listener feedback. Uh, so... 
let's first go back to Caleb Love. He he had asked a question about, and let me see if I can pull that. I've up. got it up here. You've got it. Okay, so you want to read his question about mm-hmm. the golden calf, and then uh, get into our answers. Uh, sure. Um, in First Kings twelve, Second Chronicles eleven. Jeroboam sets up two golden calves for the people to worship so that they don't go to Jerusalem. Most commentaries say that these were most likely not made to be gods to worship, but rather uh, a tool or aid to help worship God, like the true God. Uh, But he didn't really see that in the text. It seems like the opposite is the case, where they are literally worshiping like gods, false gods. So um, what, what Caleb is in, interacting with here, uh, it began back in Exodus 32, where they, they make the first golden calf. And I'm going to read through Exodus 32, um, beginning in verse 2. Well, we'll begin in verse 1. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Okay, so what do they request? They want Aaron to make them gods, lowercase g, okay? Verse 2, And Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings, which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people broke off the golden earrings, which were in their ears, and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with an engraving tool, and made a molded calf. Then they said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. Okay, this is your God, lowercase g that brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now verse 5. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. And that is the Lord's personal name. It is not a God, Lord G. It is not God's. It is simply, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. Then they rose on the next day, offered burnt offerings. What does that sound like? and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So uh, you have here in this text the construction of gods, a calf, and then the worship of the one true God, Yahweh. And there's a conflation between these two ideas. So some have surmised that the God itself the the image itself was not worshipped, but the divine presence of Yahweh, the the true God of Israel, was worshipped. That and His presence was above the image. Uh, that's what some have surmised. Others have surmised that um, Moses or uh, Aaron, Aaron simply made an image that then represented the true God Yahweh, which is of course in breaking the uh, first commandment or um, the second commandment, depending on what list you use. Uh, So um, uh, what exactly is going on here seems to be similar to what's going on with Jeroboam. Because you have the construction of a cow, a, a calf, and with Jeroboam, there are two of them. It seems to be an outright rejection of the worship of Yahweh would have uh, led to a riot 
with within the northern kingdom of Israel during the days of Jeremiah. So many scholars have read this text, Exodus 32. This was a syncretistic worship of the one true God. And they've read that same scenario into uh, 1 Kings 12 and 2 Chronicles 11, where Jeroboam was similarly, just like Aaron, saying, come and worship the Lord at these two places of worship, symbolized in the worship of the calf. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I think the key word you mentioned there, syncretism. Yes. So it's not an outright denial. Mm-hmm but it's worshiping the right God, capital G, Mm -hmm. through methods that he did not prescribe or would not have prescribed for them. And the thought that popped into my mind, because we're in Exodus 32, has Moses come down yet with the tablets? He does that right after this and he breaks them. Yeah. So, you know, you mentioned the second commandment, you know, like we're talking about the 10 commandments here. Right. Like, you know, no graven image. But that those were already given in Exodus 20. So they did have the... Okay, thank you. There was a portion of the law that was already given. That's that's where that I was trying to clarify in my mind, like, where are we there? So they they had heard... Yes. We're not supposed to make images of the Lord. Mm Mm-hmm. But it doesn't seem like, you know, Aaron is indicating that's what he's trying to do. You know, like this golden calf, you know, he doesn't think he's picturing the Lord here. But it is some interesting syncretism of worship that is uh, Mm -hmm. certainly certainly wasn't prescribed by the Lord himself, most likely. Most likely. Most, most, most definitely. Like, like yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. Like I would be shocked if we found some manuscript tomorrow. That's like, and when you worship me, <laughs> make please a make calf. a golden cow. <laughs> like that just is not quite what we would expect. I was just helping you out, man. Clarifying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so when Aaron's rec- uh, accounting of the details later on, he said, um, the people said to me, make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And I said to them, whoever has any gold. Okay. Now when Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, then he went and sent off a bunch of people to go kill him. And uh, they killed like 3000 people. So Moses's accounting of it is a little bit different. And so some scholars are like, Moses seems to cave to the pressure of the people. And he's like, well, they're going to kill me. They're going to do this anyway. So, But a lot of that is not in the text. We are kind of reading between the lines. What the text focuses on is that Moses or Aaron does what the people say. Then it seems almost like he's connecting it still to Yahweh worship, the worship of the one true God. So is there like, he doesn't want to go all the way. Uh, but he he then advocates for some syncretistic religion or something. So we aren't, I mean, you know, you can study through the text for yourself, but the 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 images themselves, Aaron connects to the one true God. Yeah. And so that's why you have the Jeroboam scenario. And I think that the big message has to do with syncretism and how God demands pure worship in the manner, not just not just in uh, word, but in practice and in deed and in the way that he commands, which is something that we need to take seriously as 21st century Christians. Yeah. And, uh, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll move on. But what's interesting to me is, you know, if they are presenting the calf in a sense, like 
this is the pillar of fire or he he's above it. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's interesting is while they're doing that, the Lord is clearly not there because where is the Lord? Upon the mountain. He's on the mountain with Moses. Yeah. No, you've highlighted actually a point that other commentators have noted as well. Yeah. God has appeared to them in these very theophanic ways. And now what have they done? They made this dumb molten image to <laughs> yeah. represent him. I was like, how lame is that? And then in Exodus 34, you know, Moses puts his tabernacle outside and yeah. guess what God does? God comes and talks to Moses like face to face. Yeah. So it just highlights the abominable practice of trying to depict God by some stupid image. Yeah. And, you know, at some point when this book I'm working on is actually finished, there's a huge point we draw from this as New Testament believers, mm-hmm. that Paul makes in 2 Corinthians, which is, there is evidence when you've been in the presence of God. And he points at Moses in Exodus 34 and says, look, he's in the presence of God and he came down from the mountain and his face was shining. And that was like the law. You now have the Holy Spirit indwelling you. Shouldn't you have some glory? that far surpasses it? Yes. And but anyway, that's not the point, but it's you know, here here they are worshiping this calf and clearly nothing's happening. The presence of God's not even there and Moses comes down and his face is shining. Yeah. And they they look at that. They look at the evidence of the presence of God and told Moses to cover it up. Right. And so like it's just it's funny to me that you have this quote unquote worship happening. Right. And they're just so averse to the actual presence of God. Yeah. But anyway, great answer, Tim. Gladly defer to your expertise in the Old Testament. And uh as if I have some expertise somewhere else, but don't really. So uh the other the other question uh that we're gonna tease is from Isaiah. And I pulled it up. Where is the tab? There we go. And we're not going to answer this one today, but we liked it. And we're going to answer it maybe on next week's episode. And while I pull that up here, I'm just going to remind you, Tim, did you know that we have a Thinklings Gmail that literally any one of our listeners who's listening to this right now, they could email us at thinklingspodcast at gmail.com with any comment or question, and we would mention it on the air. Did you know that? Well, maybe not anything, but yeah, most like, anything. Most anything. It's like the quite when I was like, you know, maybe God didn't prescribe that. I'm pretty sure. And it's like, <laughs> eh, no, we're pretty sure. Yeah. So there's there's essentially nothing you could send that we wouldn't mention on air. And uh, anyway, but so Isaiah did that. He emailed us, and here's his question: Is there a? And here's the 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 subject line: creativity and walking in the spirit, which already piqued my interest. So here's the question. Is there a contrast between finding joy in creative work, like writing, thinking, drawing, or aesthetic things, mindish things? Is there a contrast between those and finding delight in the law of the Lord? So, and in, and in parentheses, he has Psalm 1. Uh, and in prayer. In, in the law of the Lord and in prayer. Do these coincide? Do they coincide? That's a great question. 
And it's a question that targets the ordering of our affections. And we're going to address that on a future episode. But wanted to throw the question out there that all the listeners hearing that maybe you can think through, you know, the things I enjoy to do in life, the things mm. that God has asked me to love. What, what, uh, uh, to quote Lewis, is there a concord of the depth and height? Uh, anyway, but we're going to answer that on a future episode. So thank you, Isaiah, for emailing us in. Uh, emailing that into us. And if anyone else wants to email us something, we would love to have an email from you. And with that, we're on to that thing we always do. Books and business. Let's talk about some books. So I haven't really been reading anything new. I uh, have obviously read the article that we're going to address in the episode. And then it's kind of the same old, same old. The only thing that I've been working on that is a little bit uh, new-ish is I am building an online class, and uh, that is Christian Experience, which is, uh, I took that class 12 years ago in spring of 2011, and it was taught by friend of the podcast, Dr. Jeff Newman, and uh, it is now taught in person by none other than Thinkling Stearns. And so I get to join the party. Here's the the house that Dr. Newman built, which is Christian Experience. And I live in the upstairs and Andy lives in the downstairs. He teaches the in-person class and I'm going to teach the online out in the cloud class. And uh, so all that to say, in preparation for that, I went back and found my notes from when I took that class and uh, was just blessed to go back through that material to think back through those things and then even read my thoughts on what Dr. Newman was presenting to me 12 years ago. And uh, so that's really the only new thing that I've been reading and processing through and writing about in preparation for the class. And uh, just give a plug, like, you know, if you don't think taking notes is valuable, you know, if your pastor right now is going through a sermon series and you write down some points on that text and you organize it in a way that you can look back at it, you could legitimately, years from now, be studying through that passage and pull up those notes and they could be a blessing to you. And so, uh, anyway, that's really the only things that I've been reading and working on. So I'm still working through Christ in the Old Testament, uh, five views. I've made it through Golden Gate and Longman's views. Uh, I was supposed to have this done by today, but I got a one-week extension because my meeting got postponed. Yes. So <laughs> that allowed me to procrastinate even further. So anyway. Uh, and Tim is, Tim is a human like the rest of us. <laughs> so Golden Gate, which by the way, so far, I have been very unimpressed with the views presented, and I think I'm not going to like any of them. So uh, five views on Christ in the Old Testament. Um, view number one, talking about John Golden Gay, his, his view. He's postmodern, and that comes through in his, in his article. I've read a lot of stuff by John Golden Gay. He's a well-known Old Testament scholar. His Isaiah commentary is one of the best. I greatly appreciated it. He's also uh, got, well, I think, one of the best Old Testament theologies. So I'm very familiar with this author. Um, this one paragraph, he talks about his view of inspiration. I'm going to read the paragraph. Um, Paul's description of the scriptures as God-breathed has a complementary implication. The implication of the scriptures being God-breathed does not simply mean that the prophecies are infallible and inerrant. 
though they are. He says that they are, which I thought was interesting because I didn't think he believed in inerrancy, but whatever. Other New Testament references to the Holy Spirit's involvement with the scriptures relate this involvement to their extraordinary capacity to say further things to people other than the audience that they originally addressed. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? So what does it mean to be God-breathed? It You're, speaks beyond its original audience to succeeding generations. That's it's, his it's interpretation. It's relevant in ways that the original audience would have never known yes. or could have comprehended. Which, what did I say? He is what kind of a... Postmodern. He's postmodern. Which and makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense. and Because that, that's how every modern or postmodern wants documents to be understood. Right. They're, they're relevant because they're relative. Yep. So now I'm going to flip over to Tremper Longman, and he talks about his hermeneutics. And he states, um, I think it is a correct, I think it is correct to speak of a deeper meaning of a text. And then he has in parentheses, census planure, one of which the human author would not have been consciously aware so um, he's going to interpret the text in ways that is going to fall outside of the, well, the New Testament authors can, can put a, a meaning back into the text that was not there in the original document because he believes in census planure. So those are the first two views, and both of those scholars take the Old Testament seriously, for which I'm grateful. For example, John Golden Gay, I've mentioned him and how I've liked some of his writings, the reason, which is kind of weird to say I like this guy, that this postmodern guy, but um, he often will leave the text alone and just interpret it in light of its original context, which is helpful for me. And he makes good observations many times. He's off on Isaiah 42, but in the text that they go through, they go through Genesis 22 and Proverbs 8, and I liked what he had to say. I'm like, this sounds pretty close to my position. And his mm. exegesis of those texts. I think as we go through, as I go through the book, I'm going to find um, greater disagreement with some of the succeeding authors because Longman, he's going to do a census planure thing with Proverbs 8 and I'm just not going to like it. So all that to say, you know, what book might I recommend on a topic like Christ in the Old Testament? Well, The Messiah in the Old Testament by Walter Kaiser. Mm. He would argue for the single unified meaning of the passage, which is that view is not presented in this book and our listeners need to, you know, and it's just so, I, I'm they just shocked. They, they have a five-used book and yeah. they don't have that? and that one's not in there. I know. That was that's, really disturbing to me. Use your so, word, Tim. That's <laughs> horrendous. There we go. Oh. <laughs> so anyway, Messiah in the Old Testament by Walter Kaiser. If I was going to read something on this topic, that one would would definitely float to the top of the, of the list and would need to, I would encourage you to read that one uh, alongside of the, the Five Views book here. Boom. Yeah. That's my book for books and business for now. And to just give a plug again, I know I've mentioned this, we, we've mentioned this book before, but in Principles of Bible Teaching, which you could take that class online, you could even audit it from me if you'd want to, we read Kaiser's Toward an Exegetical, Toward an exegetical Theology, where he gives, I think, an it's, it's a little dated, uh -huh. it's in the 80s, but uh -huh. at the time he gives a wonderful definition in history of exegesis. Uh, he he tells you what interpretation is mm -hmm. and I think gives a great, great overview of 
the text is what the author intended. Meant. Yeah, like authorial you, intent. You can't you can't just mm -hmm. do what you want. Right. And um, and so that that is to me standard reading in that class. And uh, admittedly, you know, for the sophomore level, it's probably a little much. Like when you like he he gets into his history of interpretation and he's talking about the German, uh, you know, postmoderns. He's talking about Gadamer and yeah, you know. Golden Gate even brings it up and he mentions Kaiser and Edie Hirsch yep. validity and interpretation. There's a whole big conversation here outside of these Christian evangelical authors, but yeah, yeah, Hirsch and then you know Gadamer. Uh -huh. Ga well, what's the other big one? Uh, Van Hooser. As a big, yeah. uh, big book on the topic, but anyway, that's not why we're here. Uh, but if you want it, if you want a good book on that, you know, toward an exegetical theology by Kaiser, who Greg Kokel, friend of the podcast, famously said, "Towards what?" You know, <laughs> if you remember that. <laughs> anyway, so here's what we're going to do in this episode. We had an article sent to us uh, from Randy Vodder, friend of our podcast out in Colorado. And the, uh, the link is, uh, it's medium.com. Uh, it's a personal growth article, five cardinal rules on living a good life by CS Lewis. Like as in C these are CS Lewis's five rules. And this guy is going to give us some ideas from some quotes about Lewis. And so we're just going to walk through, I, I, I th enjoyed reading it. It's a quick read. Sure. I mean, it was, it's almost so quick that I wonder if someone just like could have gone to chat GPT and said, Hey, AI, can you write me an article based on CS Lewis? And it's just like, so like, you know, there's almost nothing to it, but because it has CS Lewis's name, I think it has some notoriety anyway. So we're going to just walk through the, the five points of the Let's article and see what we think about them. Mm -hmm. So point number one, he gives a brief introduction. Uh, so. The, we have the five cardinal rules on living a good life. Let go of the idea that life should be completely smooth and uninterrupted. He gives a brief introduction on who Lewis is. And here's point number one. One, for the, com for the complete experience, embrace life through active living and engagement. And here's the quote from C.S. Lewis. Life is too deep for words, so don't try to describe it, just live it. Okay, so before we say anything, before I say anything else, Tim, what do you think about that point and that idea? Life is too deep for words, so don't try to describe it, just live it. Yeah. I don't know, there's a lot to unpack there. He, yeah. And does Life it seem like that's something that maybe. Like you're a little surprised, Lewis, who's like a quite accomplished author, would say. It sounds a little bit. I don't know. Did you find something that it's not him that wrote it? Well, hold on. We'll hold on to that for a moment. So, uh, this goes well with the quote from Sertayange, like someone who has the life of the mind. You have mind things. You have active things. And here's Lewis, like you know what. I'll, you know, life's too short, you know, go, go live your life out there. And, uh, so what, what do you, what do you think about, um, about that, Tim? 
I don't know what he means by it. I need to get a little bit more information there. You need some context, right? I need some context, okay, yeah. Well, well, it sounds on. very postmodern. Well, like hold, it can mean a lot of different things. Hold on to that thought about context. We will come back to that later as we critique or commend this article. Just taking it at face value, I guess I don't have a problem with it at face value. And uh, what it sounds, what it sounded similar to, to me, was something from one of his buddies. And so this is a quote from Gandalf. Now, this is from the movie, The Hobbit. I have the cross reference from the book that is similar. Ooh. But here's something Gandalf says. So Let's this is hear it. Tolkien, Lewis's friend. Gandalf says this to Bilbo, the beginning of The Hobbit. You've been sitting quietly for far too long. Tell me, when did doilies in your mother's dishes become so important to you? I remember a young hobbit who was always running off in search of elves in the woods, who would stay out late, come home after dark trailing mud and twigs and fireflies. A young hobbit who would have liked nothing better than to find out what was beyond the borders of the Shire. And then here's the quote that's snappy. The world is not in your books and maps. It's out there. Gandalf tells Bilbo that. Okay, life is too deep for words, so don't try to describe it, just live it. You need to move beyond the books and reading. And so go live you your need life. to go live. Bilbo, stop, stop hanging out in the Shire. Yeah. Go adventure. Quit reading about other people's lives. You need to go live your own it's, life. It's like a, wonder, okay. a wanderlust type of a thing. That makes sense a little bit more. Now, to be fair... None of that quote. Right, that was Tolkien. None of that quote from, well, that's kind of Tolkien. None of that quote I just read mm -hmm. is actually in the book that Tolkien wrote. That's in the, the movie. movie. So a Peter Jackson adaptation. Here's, but to, to kind of communicate similarly, here is what Tolkien actually wrote. So this is a quote from The Hobbit. Okay. Describing Bill. Goodness, look at you. Holy smokes. Oh yeah, dude, I got into this one. You evidently did. It's a, con <laughs> it's a content, baby. So here's a line from the book, The Hobbit, seemingly discussing a similar idea about Bilbo. As the dwarves sang The Hobbit, so uh, saying The Hobbit, there should be a comma there. So this is a similar point in the book. So the dwarves come to Bilbo. They're trying to get him to go on this adventure. He doesn't really want to go. Okay, so as the dwarves sang, the Hobbit felt the love of beautiful things made by hands and by cunning and by magic moving through him, a fierce and jealous love, the desire of the hearts of the dwarves. So as they sing about Erebor, the, the kingdom under, under the mountain, they sing about their long lost home, Bilbo is moved. Mm. Then something Tookish woke up inside of him. Ooh. So you're fool of a took. Yep. Okay. Something Tookish woke up inside him and he wished to go and see the great mountains and hear the pine trees and the waterfalls and explore the caves and hear a sword instead of a walking stick. He looked out the window. The stars were out in a dark sky above the trees. He's looking at those stars. Here's the line. This is beautiful. Oh, here it is. He thought of the jewels of the dwarves shining in dark caverns. Suddenly, in the wood beyond the water, a flame leapt up, probably something lighting a wood fire. And he thought of plundering dragons setting, settling on his quiet hill and kindling it all to flames. Fear. 
He shuddered. And, a ver- and very quickly, he was playing Mr. Baggins of Bag End Underhill again. So, what actually happens to Bilbo? Well, he, he visualizes, he imagines both the beauty and wonder of the dwell- dwarves and elves, but also the terror of yeah. the dragon. And so, I would actually say what the movie presents is maybe just slightly incorrect. Sure. It's not that he's just some curmudgeon. He never wants to leave home. He's a homebody. Uh-huh. It's not that he doesn't have... like. I think he does appreciate beauty and adventure and things like that. But quite literally, he has been tasked with sneaking under the nose of a dragon. Sure. And he realizes that he's going to probably get killed. Sure. And that's what makes him want to stay home. Now, so what do we think about the idea? Uh, you know, is life in books? Is life lived? You know, obviously there's a balance between the two, which our quote today. Oh, yeah. Beautifully talked about. Yeah, it did. There's times when you go and you steal from a dragon. There's times when you come home and you write about it in a big red book that becomes a famous bestseller. Okay. You know, Bilbo, much like Lewis was an author. He obviously didn't believe life is outside of books. Sure. He crafted worlds on a page. Sure. I don't think, I don't think the author of the article is maybe understanding Lewis there. So you don't think so? Oh, you didn't. I don't think he misunderstood. I certainly don't think he's advocating for reckless abandon of the life of the mind. Like, go live your life. Certainly, Lewis was going to be balanced there, Uh and we don't see presented any balance. Now, do I do I not like the idea? Like five cardinal rules for life. Life's not in books. Go live it. I, I would, you know. Well, if that's if you're being hyperbolic, you're wrong. Because you, you can't, just like you can't separate action from your mind, you can't separate mind from action. And if you ignore the life of the mind, that's not a cardinal rule to live by. So don't really like rule number one. Yeah, so he may have misrepresented Lewis there because Lewis sure. wouldn't have advocated people to not read. I, I Exactly. Now, if he would have given some context and some balance, yeah. I don't have a problem with the uh-huh. idea. But in a hyperbolic sense, yeah. Okay, so number two. Uh, got to get to the right tab. Number two, let go of the idea that life should be completely smooth and uninterrupted. Here's the quote from Lewis. We must stop regarding unpleasant or unexpected things as interruptions of real life. The truth is that interruptions are real life. At face value, we think. I, I mean... I, I kind of like this one. Let go of the idea that life should be completely smooth and uninterrupted. That's his point. So a completely smooth life is what a lot of people like. In fact, I was re- interacting with somebody who uh, had read our book, and I think they misunderstood that we are advocating the successful love uh, of, of following God's plan for love is going to make life smooth. No, life's going to have its ups and downs. It's going to have its problems. But I don't know what does he mean by the uninterrupted. Um, so the truth is interruptions are real life. Just like life is not going to be a smooth, plain path. You're going to have problems. And God uses those trials, those problems to sanctify. That's where I went with it. Yeah. And uh, we'll be quick on this point. I really don't have an issue here. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you've heard us talk about, you know, what I put in my notes ad nauseum, you know, we have talked about the role of trials in the spiritual life over and over and over and over. I do think to have a 
genuine, thriving life, we have to retrain our natural affections to difficulty. Naturally, we think difficulty is bad. We want to get away from it. Spiritually, it's the complete opposite. You have to embrace difficulty. I have no problems. I like that thought. So moving on to number three, holding on to past hurts, regrets, or traumas can hinder your ability to move forward and grow. And here's the quote, getting over a painful experience is much like crossing monkey bars. You have to let go at some point in order to move forward. So the picture that Lewis is, you're you're hanging on monkey bars, it's on the gym, the playground. Sure. And you're hanging onto the bar. And if you really want to move forward, you want to get across it, you have to let go of the one you're on to grab the next one. Mm Mm-hmm. Any thoughts there? I mean, I I think there's some biblical wisdom here. Um, uh, Doc O just wrote his book, uh, A New Normal. And as trials, as problems arrive in one's life, you, you may just have to embrace like, what was my life, what was normal will never be normal again. And there's a, yeah. a new normal. So uh, sometimes that is the the way that things are. So I'm I'm not sure about his quote, but... I mean, I can see how this could be a consistent biblical principle. Yeah. And looking at the article itself, um, I I definitely think what's strong about this is the quote is so quotable, like monkey bars. You got to let go of one to get to the next. That's the best thing about the point. Remember that for later. Uh, You know, when he talks about letting go of emotional baggage from painful experiences, you know, what what is he exactly referring to, the, the author of the article here? Is it forgiving people? Is it letting pain go? Is it trying to learn to move on? Uh, you know, I think all of those could fit there. I think that's practically wise for sure. Mm-hmm. And uh, really, uh, I think you know that's something that's really easy to say. It's much harder to accomplish in reality. Uh, but I like the thought. I like the thought. Well, we'll come back to it in a moment. It'd be nice. I wish Andy was here to critique, especially this one, because it sounds a little psychobabble-ish. Like later on, he makes a statement, letting go of the emotional baggage from painful experiences is essential to build mental resilience, progress, and finding healing and happiness. And this whole finding healing and that terminology and everything sounds like a lot of uh, psychobabble. It would be nice if we would use biblical words um, to communicate biblical truth and how to deal with suffering. And Andy would be really good at interacting with that post. Yeah. And I I agree where that one, we'll just put an asterisk by it. It almost seems too good to be true, right? Okay. So number four, uh, don't miss an opportunity to learn from people smarter than you. Which is why everybody should be listening to our podcast. And should have a little group of friends to talk about books. Exactly. Don't miss out. Anyway, the next, here's the quote from Lewis. The next best thing to being wise is to live in a circle of those who are. That sounds like Lewis and his brotherhood and friendship. Exactly. So, and this is what I wrote down. Sounds like a plug for a thinklings group. Boom. So I love that one. Mm-hmm. No issues there. He's spot on. Number five, solitude, silence, and privacy are not luxuries. Sounds like Sartre's. Sounds like Sertayage. Here's the quote from Lewis. We live, in fact, in a world starved for solitude, silence, and private, and therefore starved for meditation and true friendship. 
And again, I, I do think we live in a culture where we're too busy, we're too distracted. Too public. Too public. Uh, what I mean, what I, I would know. go to at, like social media is, is just, it's a mess. It's a mess of things. And so again, I, I think this is a very Lewisy thing to say. And uh, uh, I think there's, if you d- catch it on the intricacies of the article, this is a nice balance to the first point mm. where he's like, go live your life. And then number five, he's like, but come back and be quiet and read books. Mm. So we critiqued him earlier for like kind of whiffing and he like self-corrected. I don't know if he realized he did that, but he self-corrected. Yes, live your life, but also be still. Stillness is good. And so that was my thought on number five. Uh, I have, I just have two overall thoughts on the whole thing, but what do you, I mean, if overall, I thought it was decent overall, I like Mm -hmm. the thoughts. It's a simple little, like nice thing to read, Mm -hmm. but there are some issues here. Mm -hmm. So number one, what I would say is probably the best Lewis quote, which is the monkey bars one is almost definitely not C.S. Lewis. Okay. So if you can look it up, you have to pay to read it. But Christianity Today has an article that's like top quotes that are considered to be C.S. Lewis that actually aren't. And this is in that list, the monkey bars quote. Really? Yep. And that leads to my second issue. None of these quotations or the context thereof are mentioned by the writer of the article. Right. So you have no idea what Lewis was actually saying. You don't even know where to look if you want to read them from Lewis himself. What it seems to be is that he grabbed some catchy quotes and wrote some quick thoughts about them and wanted to throw C.S. Lewis in his title because he knew he'd get clicks. Winner, winner, chicken dinner, man. That's what it's all about. Yep. And, you know, uh, if I, I wanted, know. if I wanted to actually go to, you know, I don't point, know, that's a little cynical, but on point number four, it's better to, if you're not wise, it's better to have friends who are, well, I'm not Lewis, but let me grab some quotes from him. <laughs> and so all that to say, you know, if I wanted to actually go to the one who says, this is how to live the good life. I can't, you, you've, you've chopped the tree at the roots. It's a blog post. It is. It is. But not even to mention the books they're coming from. Mm. Not even like, there's no locations, there's no titles, there's nothing. That that to me is the most egregious of the fouls here. Is that like none of the quotes are attributed, like not a title, not a page, not a whiff of where they actually come from. And uh, and I maybe missed that. I went to I went to read the comments on the article to see if I could find it, and that's where I was tipped off pretty heavily that some of these quotes probably aren't Lewis. Um, so, uh, overall, all of this falls under the, the umbrella of practical wisdom, right? Uh, and God's word teaches all of these principles in a much better way. Uh, but as an article telling me these are C.S. Lewis's five cardinal rules. Yeah, that's a bit of an overstatement, five cardinal rules. Yeah. I think, I think it's a little bit of, um, that's a lot of author, author, uh, you know, the author of the article actually. Is saying that that's not Lewis. Yeah. And, and yeah. I, I mean, I would take issue with number one. I don't think Lewis would say that in the context that this author's portraying it. Uh, number three, I don't think Lewis actually said. Yeah. I mean, the thing with number three is I could see the idea probably in some of his books. Sure. 
And I, and, and I think the Bible teaches that clearly, mm-hmm. you know, sure. don't be bitter, forgive, right. you know, press on to the goal, you know, right. but anyway, so overall, like, is it something you need to read? No. Um, but it just reminds us folks, have academic integrity. If you're going to quote somebody, tell me where you're quoting from. Where you got it from. Tell, like, tell me what you're quoting. Um, this actually bothered me about one of the things I talk about in a class. Go right back to Second Corinthians. There was a commentary that referred to Second Corinthians 2 through 7 as the great digression. And I just remembered reading it in study. And I was like, that is such a great, like fake title to what that is. The great digression. Because it seems like, uh, not Lewis, Paul is talking about one thing and he just goes on this huge tangent for like five chapters and commentaries just struggle to figure out what's going on. And then one commentator's like, it's the great digression. And I used that for years. And then one time I'm like, I have no idea where that actually came from. And I, I tracked it down. And now in my classes, my students can attest to this. When I get to that PowerPoint slide about the great digression, I have a quote from the commentator and it's footnoted at the bottom. And just like, if you're going to, if you're going to say, this is what somebody said, you got to show me where they said it. Um, in a, in a day of fake news, don't, don't tell me someone said something without telling me where they said it. Anyway, so this is all is a response to Randy's email. Like, what do you think about this? with the ideas at face value and I don't really have an issue with them with how the article is put together, how it's portraying CS Lewis have a few issues there, but uh, if you want to look it up and read it for yourself, medium.com five cardinal rules by CS Lewis or from CS Lewis. Anyway, last thing we're going to do today, we have a final meditation in Exodus 32 ish. I mean, I kind of already got into it a little bit in our um, listener uh, feedback, but in Exodus 32, what do you have? You have a syncretistic religion where the Lord is included with uh, the worship of some kind of idol. Israel was condemned repeatedly for this practice uh, throughout their history. What was it often called? Idolatry. Idolatry. Okay, right. But when they confuse the worship of idols with the worship of the true God, what were they being or what were they? Uh, it's too too ambiguous. You're false worshipers. Okay. They sinners. committed spiritual adultery. Oh, thank you. Oh, I should have gotten that. I should that's not that ambiguous. I should have got that. That's all good. Okay. So as we think through the practice of syncretism, what it is is it's a form of adultery. God dis desire spiritual adultery. God desires pure and holy worship, pure and holy relationship with uh, his subjects in in the in the Old Testament, that would be the nation of Israel. And then in the New Testament, um, that's what uh, God requires of the church. We see that same terminology even in the New Testament. So lest you think that that is simply an Old Testament thing, it is not. James rebukes the believers in James chapter 4, verse 4. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but he gives more grace, therefore he says, 
God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. The principle established in the Old Testament continuing into the New Testament is that God is a jealous God. We live in a culture that does not like jealousy. That exclusivity, however, is a righteous and a good thing. The jealous uh, relationship between God and his subject is also a good thing. I was talking to some students even today as we began a discussion about worldliness, uh, thinking through 1 John chapter 2 and the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. These are things that are of the world. The world passes away, but our Lord and the things that are eternal endure forever. Uh, we as believers need to need to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth, in exclusivity in the manner in which he desires. So this whole idea of adultery and adult um, adultery and, and fidelity uh, present in the old and continuing in the new is something I'll probably talk about in a future episode. Um, I think that there is a component of, of faithfulness that's related to the idea of adultery and spiritual adultery that might shed some light upon why our children abandon the faith after us. And we should ask ourselves, why is it that our children abandon the faith? Are we worldly Christians? Are we committing spiritual adultery with the world? And when our children see that, what happens? They're gone. So. Think about that, and that's something that I'm still thinking through. Uh, but look at your life and identify any worldliness that may be there and live a life that's wholly devoted to the Lord. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Thinklings Podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, suggestions, or potential topics that you'd like us to discuss, you can contact us through our email thinklingspodcast at gmail.com. Remember, don't let this conversation end with this podcast. Read good books, talk about them with your friends, and always continue to cultivate your mind. See you next time on the Thinklings Podcast. The Thinklings want to remind our listeners that the Thinklings Podcast is our personal production. Our conversations, book discussions, and viewpoints may not represent the views of Faith Baptist Bible College and Theological Seminary. Any questions or feedback should be directed to us at the Thinklings Podcast.